I also want to speak tonight directly to Muslims throughout the world. We respect your faith. It's practiced freely by many millions of Americans and by millions more in countries that America counts as friends. You feel it. You yeah. feel the way that the white dance moms at the dance studio stopped talking to my mom the day after 9-11 because she was an Arab. The value they put on human life is very different from the value Americans to put what extent? on human to what life. Basically, I just remember these three kids uh, standing near my locker um, and one of them just going, hey, what did your people do? Hey, what did your people do? Poetry assuages our absolute loneliness in the lonely universe. The light we see in the sky comes from a distant burning, as does poetry. Poetry is a radical presence constantly goading us. Poetry in handcuffs handcuffs the human race. Poetry can still save the world by transforming consciousness. People have asked me before what my favorite video game is. Now, you might think the 1,000 hours that I've put into Fallout New Vegas might be a bit of a clue as to the answer, but that's not quite right. A year or so ago, I stumbled on a new game that I really just can't stop thinking about. Well, I say new. New to me. Really, it's pretty old. Uh, pretty very old for a video game. Ancient, in fact. It's the computer role-playing game that took 1986 by storm, Ultima 4. I can't recommend it enough, but I'd like to apologize preemptively to all of you who spend the two or three dollars to buy it, boot it up, and then stare at it horrified as soon as you gain control of your character. Like I said, it's very old. Although I'd heard of the Ultima series, I hadn't given it much thought until I started reading a book about computer role-playing games called Cannily enough, the computer role-playing game book, or the CRPG book. Although the book is mostly a catalog of role-playing games released for the computer from the 1970s until today, an essay at the beginning about Ultima 4 basically propelled me toward the game out of sheer spite. It's titled Unplayable, and it describes a professor's frustrated attempts to get his students to make any sort of progress in the game on their own. The general thesis is that the visual language of, and subsequent interactions with and expectations for, video games have morphed and evolved so drastically since Ultima 4 came out that most people who are only familiar with modern games will find Ultima 4 opaque and inscrutable. I took this as a challenge. Most modern games have a few common elements. While these might be tweaked from entry to entry, they all satisfy some of the same basic functions that have defined what it means for a game to be modern. These might include things like a map that automatically fills in as you explore, an unerring compass, an in-game journal with predetermined entries, etc. Many even have glowing, pulsating markers that show you exactly where you need to place your character so you can push the button on the controller that makes that character do the thing that progresses the story. 
This is by no means a comprehensive list, and it certainly doesn't account for the many various genres and styles of games, but overall, video games have become more accommodating. This isn't by itself a bad thing. I'm glad people are having fun. Until I played Ultima 4, however, I hadn't realized just how incredible the alternative experience to the streamlined one actually is. Ultima 4 is a game about inspiring the people by living virtuously, which rocks, but that's not why I like it. I'm infatuated with Ultima 4 because it was the first video game I played where I had to take notes. I had to make maps. I had to actually think about the clues the game was giving me. And because of that, I became so much more invested in it than I had any other game. I actually have a document of notes that's almost as long as one of these scripts. There's a deep connection there. When you don't have a fairy screaming, hey, listen, in your ear when you've been wandering around for too long, or when you get a tutorial every 30 minutes. The earliest of video games, even earlier than Ultima 4, were about this deep connection. But they took it another step further. Consider this passage from the CRPG book about the 1980 game, Amen. Quote, Initially circulating by word of mouth, it became popular via Recreational Computing, an American computer magazine. Their July 1980 issue was entirely dedicated to fantasy games, with articles about how to create such games, their future as a genre, and also a few games, such as Amen and Wizard's Castle, with their authors explaining how they work and the next few pages containing the game's entire basic code. Readers would type the code on their computers and then save it on a tape or disc in order to play. This was a cheap way to distribute games before the internet, but also an invaluable resource in helping aspiring programmers learn from others' code." End quote. Early game programmers were almost exclusively university students, because universities had the computers. They'd have to hide their game code in nondescript, out-of-the-way places on the mainframes to avoid having them deleted by buzzkill professors. These games would be traded and improved upon by hobbyists and aficionados the world over. The games and the work on the games were the connections that built the underground community. It's hard to argue that such a community exists today. Yes, more people are playing and even creating video games than ever before. But under what purview? And for what purpose? Not only are the delivery formats for games limited to basically four options under three companies, Microsoft, Sony, Nintendo, with a few rare exceptions, but also, despite self-published games making up something like 75% of all games on Steam now, only 15% of them are released for free. Considering that it used to be nearly 100%, and that games were built in ways that allowed others to create content for them, it's safe to say that the community that has grown has also changed significantly. The highest earning games are the ones that include in-game transactions, or release downloadable content packages for purchase after the initial game. And quite often, these games are the ones that are advertised as free to players, eating into that 15% realistically. Alongside this, a fertile culture of militarism and general toxic competitiveness has been manufactured. Games like America's Army and Call of Duty are directly and openly influenced by government agencies like the NSA and the CIA 
to make sure they portray the crimes of the U.S. and their perpetrators in a way that makes them look cool and justified and even aspirational. World of Warcraft was a notorious hub for government agents to spy on potential dissidents and recruit informants. Even seemingly innocuous games like Fortnite reinforce the idea of hoarding in the face of scarcity. Considering that so many of the video game industry's creations are essentially propaganda for the system that allowed them to now be made for profit rather than for fun, we have to ask ourselves a serious question. If given the choice, would most people who play video games have chosen for their games to be this way? Would they want to be forced to pay for games that cultivate or serve such systemic evil? The fact is that we'll never know because they did not have that choice. We didn't have that choice. This leads us to ask more broadly, how else we have been corralled into communities we have no say in? And why do we accept that the work we do in these communities serves only the interest of those who have forced us into them? What worries me is that America's kind of lost its sense of the future right now. The idea is the future is going to be the collapse of empire or the rise of the zombies or something that wipes us all out. Superman's on it forever. Superman, as far as I'm concerned, they saved my life. Grim, totalitarian police state in Britain of the unreachably far future, like 1997. Comic book artists were not happy with Warhol or with McIntyre or any of the pop artists because they said they took our imagery and we got paid page rate. Before I talk about the contents of the issue, I'd like to address the title. Homeland Security. Now, this isn't, as far as I understand, the title given to it in its original publication. It seems like all the titles of the first volume were given basically as full-page punctuations between issues in the collected edition. It's pretty slick, I have to say. But what makes this interesting is not just the title. It's the fact that the title very likely couldn't have been given to the original run of the issue. Issue 7 has a cover date of September 2002, two months before the Department of Homeland Security was even formed. And yeah, it's possible that Mark Miller could have been aware of the congressional debate and the hearings from June of that year leading up to the department's creation in November, but I doubt it. The New York Times wrote one almost decent article about it in August of 2002 titled, Washington Talk, Prickly Roots of Homeland Security in which they reported on people's actual, justifiable apprehensions around the fascistic aesthetic of the name Department of Homeland Security. Of course, as you've probably come to expect, the article just ends up hand-waving these fears away by reporting on how the historical roots of homeland-esque vocabulary were simply twisted and appropriated by the Nazis. But it's okay now because Israel uses almost the exact same phrasing. Those of us who have been paying attention know that the DHS has metastasized beyond even its original heinous remit. Far from protecting American citizens, the DHS now actively spies on all of us. 
they kidnapped protesters during the George Floyd uprising. At least 300 current and former DHS employees are part of the far-right militia, the Oath Keepers. This is all a reminder that I don't just want the takeaway from this project to be that things used to be bad when these comics were coming out. History is not a series of discrete, unrelated events. Things are worse now than ever before because of these events. There is now a distinct culture of antagonism between the community of people who believe the DHS and just about every other law enforcement or intelligence agency are working for us and those who understand that this isn't the case. As Benedict Anderson puts it in his book, Imagined Communities, quote, since the end of the 18th century, nationalism has undergone a process of modulation and adaptation according to different eras, political regimes, economies, and social structures, end quote. So-called official nationalism, as he puts it, has been, quote, from the start, a conscious, self-protective policy intimately linked to the preservation of imperial dynastic interests, end quote. This, of course, has not changed, and the Department of Homeland Security has been the most recent facilitator of said policy. We don't need to weave intricate arguments to this end. We can take their very word for it. The DHS's mission statement on their website, the one you can go visit right now, is this, quote, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, DHS, and its Homeland Security mission are born from the commitment and resolve of Americans across the United States in the wake of the September 11th attacks. In those darkest hours, we witnessed true heroism, self-sacrifice, and unified resolve against evil. We rallied together for our common defense, and we pledged to stand united against the threats attacking our great nation, fellow Americans, and way of life. I will remind you that this evil being referred to was gestated very deliberately by the United States in the 1970s and 80s, and then it was consciously ignored in the 90s because people like Donald Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney had the intention of using an attack such as the one that occurred on 9-11 as a pretext to implement the overreaching security and privatization policies that they created decades ago. To communicate in explicit terms such as the DHS does here is to draw a clear line between an us and a them. When enough lines like this are drawn, the resulting picture is a blueprint for violence. It weaponizes the idea of togetherness. It turns group identity into a splintering wedge rather than a cog with a greater purpose. With this warping, this perversion of a sense of community, we can now look upon our story. We're greeted with a full-page shot of St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York. Fun fact about that cathedral, in 1944, someone graffitied a hammer and sickle onto it in red paint. And in 2020, another comrade spray-painted BLM onto it. I've decided that this building itself must appreciate such progressive attention and, through whatever spiritual means it may have, summons to it those inclined to decorate it so. There's a huge memorial service happening in the church with hundreds of mourners gathered inside and outside around the building. 
Pictures of the victims of the Hulk's rampage are hung up all around, along with notes and mementos that people have left for them. It's clear that Miller and Hitch are trying to do at least a somewhat decent job with inclusivity, but the most prominent picture is, of course, a police officer. You know, the gatekeeper to real equality. In fact, three of the seven pictures featured are police, so there you go. Turning the page, we see shots of the grieving in the church, interspersed with panels showing an unconscious Janet Pym, now full-sized instead of in her shrunken wasp state, being gurneyed into an ambulance following her husband Hank's brutal assault with his Ant-Man powers in the last issue. Over all this, Steve Rogers, Captain America, reads a eulogy for the dead. And it's certainly not what I had been expecting. Tell me not, in mournful numbers, Life is but an empty dream. For the soul is dead that slumbers, and things are not what they seem. Life is real. Life is earnest. And the grave is not its goal. Dust thou art, and to dust returnest, was not spoken of the soul. Not enjoyment and not sorrow is our destined end or way. But to act that each tomorrow find us farther than today. Art is long, and time is fleeting, and our hearts, though stout and brave, still, like muffled drums, are beating funeral marches to the grave. In the world's broad field of battle, in the bivouac of life, be not like dumb, driven cattle. Be a hero in the strife. Trust no future, however pleasant. Let the dead past bury its dead. Act. Act in the living present. Heart within, and God o'erhead. This is A Psalm of Life by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Part of it, anyway. It's a poem about a young man declaring that acting in the moment is more godly and profound than a life of quiet, sequestered study. I actually think this is a great poem to use here. It captures the adventurous and often adventurist spirit of the superhero. It is, indeed, more meaningful to live a storied life of interaction when you can lift a truck or psychically communicate with time-traveling ghosts or whatever. You know, assuming you lift that truck or talk to those ghosts for good and not for evil. This tracks with Miller's overall approach to superheroes. Miller seems to have always straddled the line between the larger-than-life and the we-are-but-scum-in-the-gutter philosophy. It also coheres with Miller's purported radical leftism. One must ask oneself when considering the meaning of liberation. Who am I trying to liberate? Myself or us all? Given his propensity for redefining characters either toward or away from what he described as crazy bastards covered in blood, and his apparent knack for creating characters with more marketable foibles, it would seem that Miller is only interested in liberating superheroes from their past selves and us from our money. Rest assured, Mark Miller is not radically left-wing. What do I mean by adventurist? God help me, I'm about to use the D word. But in communist discourse, adventurism is the frowned-upon philosophy of action without theory of proceeding without a plan. More often than not, adventurism comes up in the discussion of collective direct action 
versus acts of individual terror. As we've discussed before, the superhero genre is not one suited for our types of collective action. There are no collective action comics. Speaking of adventurism, I think it's time we check in with the arguably adventurest adventurist of the bunch, Bruce Banner, the Hulk. The next scene finds us again in the green and blue drenched holding cell of the pissy nerd turned war criminal. Oddly enough, the comic makes no mention of Banner or his cell having been moved, but the establishing shot for this scene indicates that it happens aboard S.H.I.E.L.D.'s mobile command center, the Triskelion. But in the previous issue, we saw Betty Ross, the communications director for S.H.I.E.L.D., who happens to be Bruce's separated wife, and Nick Fury, S.H.I.E.L.D.'s commanding officer, descending to this very holding facility via a super-secret extra-secure elevator beneath a hospital. What's up with that? Anyway, another doctor has come to visit Banner and to give him the results of some blood work they recently performed. Fun fact, this doctor, one Eamon Branken, is modeled after a real-life doctor who helped Mark Miller with some sort of mystery illness. Miller was somewhat famously diagnosed with Crohn's disease in 2005, so I'm not sure what was going on with him in 2001. This doctor character introduces himself and relays to Banner that he has been seconded to Banner's former position under Hank Pym since Banner's Hulk episode landed Banner here in Super Time Out. He's also here to inform Banner of some unfortunate developments at the cellular level. It would seem that, because Banner mixed the latest batch of Hulk formula with Captain America's super soldier serum, Hulk cells are now forming a permanent bond with his DNA. He is, to say the least, unhappy about that. We came into this episode talking about community and connection. A sense of national pride fosters both, of course. But what happens when that too is manufactured? How is it manufactured? There's a good old-fashioned word for people like us. We call them suckers. And there are other people. People who stay up nights figuring out how to take away what they've got. The frenzy of nationalism in the post-9-11 United States is an excellent example to consider for these questions. And there's no way Mark Miller understood just how on the nose the other part of this conversation is. Just prior to discussing the bad news about the blood work, Branken debriefs Banner on the outcome of the Hulk attack. Branken confirms for Banner that the Hulk's death count is at least in the three-figure range. Branken coldly comforts Banner by assuring him that the media is focusing on the people who were saved rather than the people who died. When Banner assumes that the public is going to call for his head on a platter, Branken corrects him by revealing that his involvement in the whole affair has basically been airbrushed out of existence. Quote, as far as the American people are concerned, there's absolutely no connection between Bruce Banner and the Hulk. What does this have to do with community? Well, if the grieving masses outside the church from the first page are any indication, quite a bit. Do you remember where you were on September 12th, 2001? September 13th. Well, students at one local school taking time today to honor first responders. Thousands of flags planted in the Garden of Remembrance in the Boston Public Garden. Students, parents, and neighbors placed nearly 3,000 flags, each one labeled with the victim's name. I can't tell you exactly, but I can tell you what I remember from those days. I was in the sixth grade. 
And one day, about a week after the attack, my middle school made some of us wear red shirts, some of us wear white shirts, and some of us wear blue shirts. Some of the kids in blue shirts were given giant poster paper stars to hold. In mid-morning, we were all herded down to the baseball field to stand in formation. We multi-hued children were corralled into the shape of a humongous American flag over which a news helicopter flew, capturing us singing God Bless America for the evening broadcast. I'm just thankful local suburban Alabama news crews in 2001 didn't carry cameras good enough to capture the constituent pimples and boogers that must have made up 90% of the body mass of that flag. That Christmas, a poem about a flag being unfurled next to a Christmas tree that I wrote for an assignment was selected to go on the school-wide staff and faculty Christmas cards. I still fantasize about being able to kick in my sixth grade history teacher's door and warn all the kids not to believe a word she says. And I bet I'm not alone in that pleasant little daydream. I could reference any number of saccharine articles that flooded the mainstream in those days of fury and disbelief. But that was pretty well covered in episode two of this season. What I'd really like to talk about is the other side of that forced community-building coin. Those who were victimized by the United States and subsequently coerced into attacking it. To quote an anonymous Afghan citizen, for God's sake, you're funding your own assassins. Let's turn back the clocks a bit to 1947. This is the decade that saw the creation of two of the most evil and pernicious projects to ever disgrace this beautiful web we call humanity. The Central Intelligence Agency and the National Security Council. I will remind you again that despite what all the hot actors and all the flashy American TV shows tell you, these groups do not keep you safe. Through secretive, unrestricted actions on the parts of these bodies, a cancerous and unaccountable entity has grown within our already malfeasant government. As Peter Dale Scott puts it in his book, The Road to 9-11, Wealth, Empire, and the Future of America, quote, more and more major redirections of U.S. foreign policy have been initiated and conducted not by those who are publicly charged with a responsibility for them, but by others, often in secret. Indeed, one political motive for these institutions was to create a larger space for secrecy at the heart of what had been traditionally a more open form of government, end quote. This erosion, as Scott calls it, of transparency was and is deliberate and not an inevitability. It results in influence and coercion, both public and covert. Apart from the obvious influence that accompanies money changing hands, lobbying kickbacks, you know the drill. This subversion of the public state manifests its control more nefariously by reframing and redirecting public discourse. We'll come back to that. In the 1980s, our favorite villain from season one, Ronald Reagan, set up a plan with a couple of our favorite villains from this season, Donald Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney, called the continuity of government. Although the idea had been around in various forms since 1776, Reagan's version was a response to the brutal and unfortunately successful repression of left-wing movements in the U.S. in the 60s and 70s. Reagan looked upon that, and he saw that it was good. 
a major part of the Carter slash Reagan slash Bush slash Clinton slash Bush slash Obama slash Trump slash Biden expansion of this secret bloody tumor at the heart of statecraft has been the clandestine agitation and eventual funding of reactionary movements in foreign countries with the express purpose of using them to destabilize the current governments of those nations. I already talked about this in previous episodes. In particular, I discussed the activities of the National Endowment for Democracy and the United States Agency for International Development. When I say that the United States has spent billions of dollars and entire decades propagandizing overseas, I want to be very clear what I mean. This isn't just soft power being projected by things like baseball or illicit rock and roll broadcasts or slick movies that lie about how cool it is to live in America. The U.S. destroys infrastructure and terrorizes and brainwashes whole or significant portions of populations into meeting whatever particular need the U.S. has at the moment. From 1986 to 1994, USAID covertly published and distributed inflammatory children's textbooks in Afghanistan using the University of Nebraska-Omaha as a conduit and a smokescreen. The textbooks encouraged jihad and violence against the Soviet army and the efforts of Afghanistan's Communist Party. This and other propaganda pushes, not to mention $1 billion worth of weapons a year provided to reactionary forces in Afghanistan, resulted in two desired effects. The first was to prime the Afghans against the Russians. The second, and more sinister, was to sow the seeds of violence and extremism that would eventually lead to, if you haven't guessed it, two planes crashing into the World Trade Center, one into a field in Pennsylvania, and another into the western side of the Pentagon. This propaganda for violent radicalization was put into place by people who hoped it might lead to an attack on the United States that they could then use to justify the sweeping privatization of government services and institute a mass network of legal and illegal surveillance on the ostensibly vaunted homeland. They did this to make money and it worked. In the aftermath of that, propaganda had to change. The U.S. needed to condition its soon-to-be victims in Afghanistan and particularly Iraq that an intervention would be a good thing and that U.S. troops and influence should not be resisted. The gentlemen from America may call that peace, but I have another word for it. I call it war. In Iraq in 2002, the U.S. dropped 480,000 leaflets that read, quote, Coalition air power can strike at will, anytime, any place. The attacks will destroy you at any location of coalition choosing. Will it be you or your brother? You decide, end quote. Some of the leaflets indicated that readers should tune in to a new anti-Saddam Hussein radio station that would broadcast messages like, quote, People of Iraq, the amount of money Saddam spends on himself in one day would be more than enough to feed a family for a year. How much longer will this corrupt rule be allowed to exploit and oppress the Iraqi people? End quote. Now, whether or not that broadcast was true, let's never lose sight of the fact that whatever Hussein might have been spending 
would most assuredly pale in comparison to what any one of our corporate dictators spend on themselves over here. Don't forget that billionaire wealth has tripled since COVID started, and that's your money they're accruing. The U.S. had a term for all this that you probably remember, hearts and minds. It's through this lens that we have to understand the social and the media side of power, to shape an opinion, to concoct and conjure support where once there was none, to manufacture consent. This is perhaps the most important arm of the U.S.'s world domination efforts. It's why I make this podcast. The U.S. uses its worldwide media apparatus to condition its citizens to champion its wars and to accept oppression that it perpetrates. It broadcasts messaging and distributes misinformation at home and abroad designed specifically to make it easier to destroy the fabric of societies it views as nothing more than useful. Certainly not immune to this was Mark Miller. And while Miller has probably never asked for a second source on anything in his entire life, he's certainly given Bruce Banner a reason to do so now. As a neat little bow to put on the scene, Banner demands that Branken let him speak to Hank Pym to confirm that Branken's findings about Banner's now permanent Hulk condition are accurate. It would seem that Banner has no qualms about his rival's work in dire times of his own need. Rather ominously, if not wholly unexpectedly, Branken informs Banner that Hank Pym has disappeared. Cut to the aftermath of the memorial. Betty Ross and Nick Fury are leaving together, and Betty is filling Nick in on some numbers. She tells him that the approval ratings among their focus groups are astronomical. She crows about what a good idea it was to get Captain America to read the eulogy and claims that their target demographic loves, quote, that hokey old soldier crap. Fury then asks her if she was born without an off switch. A fair question considering how cynical and callous Betty constantly appears in this comic. Betty responds by saying, oh sure, like you were in there praying for all the itty bitty children, soldier boy. When Betty accuses Fury of not actually caring about the massacre, it sets up either of two things. One, Nick Fury doesn't actually care and we're still supposed to root for him. Or two, Nick Fury does care and he represents the sentimental side of the US military. Both of these are bad. This moment channels the very essence of this book. There really is no winning regardless of how you read it. I mean, there's also no winning simply because you read it. And I'm sorry you did that. Shifting focus to a few feet away, we find Captain America himself leaving the memorial alone, somehow. It's wild that he's not absolutely plagued by reporters and fans. He does get approached, however, by Bucky and Gale. To remind you all, Bucky, now in his 70s or 80s, was Captain America's boy wonder sidekick in World War II. I think they're actually the same age, but that's the vibe their relationship gave off. Gale was Steve Rogers' fiance, his best gal, his main squeeze. At least until she and everyone else thought that Steve had died after the events of the first issue of this series. She and Bucky ended up together, and when they found out that Steve was alive all these years later, Gale refused to come down to see Steve after she and Bucky invited him over to their house to reunite. Apparently, she's gotten over her mortification that Steve still looks so young and she looks so old, 
because she greets him as if they'd been friendly for a while now. So I guess we'll never get to see how that all played out, because God forbid there be any actual human drama in this supposedly realistic take on the concept of the Avengers. Bucky and Gale mention how proud they are of Steve, and tell him how their grandchildren watched the video of him defeating the Hulk every day after getting home from school. And that's horrifying. Why would anyone let kids watch that? The obvious answer, of course, is that it's propaganda. And in this country, propaganda can do no wrong. The Hulk was an unknown quantity that had just invaded and destroyed Manhattan. He is now being wholly demonized in the press to cover the crimes of those who created him. Now imagine that there was a whole population of people in the U.S. with zero connection to the Hulk who were being targeted because of some vague and misunderstood similarities. Well, that's Muslims in the U.S. after 9-11. Or Sikhs. Or anyone else even sort of Middle Eastern looking. Per a 2016 Pew Research Center analysis, there were 12 reported anti-Muslim assaults, including both simple and aggravated, in the year 2000. In 2001, there were 93. We can only assume that the overwhelming majority of those happened in just the last three and a half months of 2001. And again, these are only the ones that were reported to the FBI, an agency not exactly notorious for its sympathy with marginalized groups. One can imagine the furor happening at the time that would lead awful Americans to commit such heinous acts. But here's the thing. The reported crimes dropped precipitously in 2002, from 93 to 34, but continued to rise in general until 2015. Why did it drop off? Surely it's because people became super magnanimous and accepting, and simply stopped attacking perceived foreigners out of xenophobic rage. It's definitely not because the FBI probably never followed up with any of the reports and indeed eventually used anti-Muslim sentiment to manufacture fake terror plots in which they posed as terrorist organizations and tricked vulnerable people on the internet into joining Al-Qaeda and ISIS just so they could arrest them and boost the FBI's success rate numbers for more funding. There's no way that either of those things could have had any effect on whether or not Muslim people trusted the FBI enough to actually report any crimes to them. So why, after the drop, did crime against Muslims, reported to the FBI or otherwise, begin to rise? Because of the Iraq War, of course. Since the U.S. had precisely zero evidence to link Iraq to 9-11, they had to paint Saddam Hussein and Iraq in a different kind of scary light. Enter the weapons of mass destruction that never were. It is all a web of lies, a web of lies. The propaganda was so furious and so encompassing that people who were pushing back against it were dismissed as being agents of Saddam. On September 13, 2002, a critic of the war and actual former weapons inspector named Scott Ritter was told by Paul Azan on CNN, quote, people out there are accusing you of drinking Saddam Hussein's Kool-Aid. With people physically attacking them and verbally condemning even their mildest non-Muslim defenders, Muslims in the United States were forced out of a national community that they had thought they were safe in. Some pertinent quotes from a 2021 article in the LA Times titled Muslim Youth in America, a Generation Shadowed by the Aftermath of 9-11. Zainabu Ba. Quote, After 9-11, you go out and people look at you like you're a terrorist. End quote. 
Salma Nasruddin. Quote, Post 9-11, Islamophobia spiked. That created kind of like a harsh environment to grow up in, end quote. Mira Tarabain, quote, Arabs and Muslims tend to be victims of the same terrorists that did 9-11, but there's no recognition of that, end quote. A young woman named Nashawati, quote, Growing up as a hijabi woman, you never really know why a person is staring at you. In my opinion, that makes it more scary for you, because when I'm walking outside and I see a bunch of people staring at me, I'm like, why are they staring? Like, what did I do? End quote. And finally, to tie it all up, a quote from a young woman named Isada. Quote, you focus on putting energy into people that actually accept you and love you for who you are at the end of the day. Because that's the only way to survive. End quote. The importance of community, of connection, cannot be overstated. It's devastating when that's severed, and it takes something massive, usually deliberate, and, and this part is very important, sustained. The Hulk video does sound particularly effective and engaging. But what's more effective and engaging than propaganda you can actually interact with? Right behind you, Eric. Friendly's in the living room. Friendly's living room. On the right, Eric. On the right. Nice. I'll start with a pretty encompassing quote from a 2016 Engadget article called Shooting the Arabs, How Video Games Perpetuate Muslim Stereotypes. The current political and cultural climate is the reason in media we are the bad guys right now, said Rami Ismail, a co-founder of Lambert, an independent game studio based in the Netherlands. The same broad brush, he says, applies to video games too. The Call of Duty franchise, for example, is rife with Muslim villains, like Khaled al-Assad in Modern Warfare. That's Call of Duty over and over. Shoot all the Arabs, said Ismail. Muslim blood is the cheapest in the world. The most egregious example actually comes from a game called, and I'm not joking here, Muslim Massacre that became available in 2008. It was created by a man named Eric Vaughn who used the online handle Zigfotter, named after a Norwegian poet and probably not definitely a fascist. He posted it to a bunch of forums on somethingawful.com so it could gain some traction. Vaughn is quoted in an article by The Telegraph as saying that the goal of the game is to, quote, ensure that no Muslim man or woman is left alive, end quote. I don't think you need three guesses to know what this is all about. Games like Tekken 6 have Muslim characters that are shallow pastiches of what Americans believe all Muslim people to be. I mean, not all Muslims are Arabic, even. The country with the largest Muslim population is Indonesia, which is pretty fucking not close to the Arabian Peninsula. One of the most famous so-called good portrayals of a Muslim person in a video game is Farida Malik from Deus Ex Human Revolution. But if the rest of our media is anything to go off of, she's only good because she grew up in the States and is thus seen as Western enough. I mean, you can even call into question previous entries of the Legend of Zelda series. I know it hurts your feelings. The bad guy, Ganondorf, is a dark-skinned manipulator who represents an entire culture of criminals and thieves. Another factor in the equation, rather than video games being purely anti-Muslim, 
are games being pro-U.S. military. Two months prior to the publication of Issue 7 of The Ultimates, the U.S. government released a game that was fully subsidized and thus free to play called America's Army. They shut it down just last year. That means that the stupid game was around and active for two goddamn decades and served as a key recruiting tool for the armed forces. To quote an article from Corey Mead on RethinkingSchools.com, and here I'm going to read the whole passage, the game was explicitly designed to target 13-year-olds, or in the Army's words, to capture youth mindshare, who have yet to make a decision about what to do with their lives. As Colonel Casey Wardinsky, the creator and director of the America's Army Project, told me in an interview, quote, You can't wait until they're 17, because by then they will have decided that they're going to college, or to a trade school, or they'll already have a job that they're planning to stay in. You have to get to them before they've made those decisions, end quote. Because America's Army targets minors, the American Civil Liberties Union recently found that Army use of the game violates the optional protocol on the involvement of children in armed conflict that the U.S. ratified in 2002. When I asked Wardensky about the ACLU's charge, however, he said, quote, I don't see America's Army as recruitment. I see it as education, end quote. So there you have it, yet another community being manipulated for violent purposes, being reformed, being controlled. This is how connections are broken and how the severance of such ties is maintained. Constant bombardment from youth that some people are good, some people are bad, some are normal, and some are different. It's okay to oppress the outgroup, to marginalize. Your nation demands it of you, and it always has. Speaking of control and manipulation, it's time we get back to the comic. Captain America gratefully accepts an invitation to join Bucky down at the lodge some night in the near future, but his conversation is cut short by Nick Fury, who tells him of a developing situation at a nearby hospital. Cap, Nick, and Betty arrive to find Tony Stark, Iron Man, already standing just outside the room Janet Pym is in. The doctor informs the new arrivals that Jan is in a state of anaphylactic shock. The medical team has already determined that the wounds all over her body are bite marks from multiple ants that she must have sustained while in her shrunken wasp state. Based on an account from one of the Pym's neighbors, the evidence seems pretty clear that Hank attacked Jan and fled the scene. And here we get yet another line that absolutely sets me off. Fury's response to all of this is, quote, Man, this is a nightmare. We designed Giant Man to be an action figure for God's sake. He ain't supposed to do stuff like this. The Ultimates is a failure on so many levels. Even if we take the just behind face value approach and accept that it's a critique of the sale of post 9-11 jingoism with a team of faulty individuals thrust into the public eye, the fact remains that the parties at fault here are only certain members of the Ultimates themselves for explicitly personal foibles, and a supremely powerful intelligence agency that was dumb enough or rushed enough to employ them. In this book, the Ultimates are the problem, and S.H.I.E.L.D. is not. This is wrong. It's just that simple. In my research into pop media military propaganda, I did find that Mattel has a line of its Mega Constructs toys that are based on each of the various Call of Duty games. So I guess someone read this comic and thought that Nick Fury was onto something. Very cool. 
Fury then issues a command to have Jan moved from the hospital to the base. Not, it should be noted, because she'll receive better care there, but because he doesn't want reporters seeing this. Our next scene takes us to the very appropriately named Empire Diner, an iconic retro-looking restaurant that I'm sure you've all seen before in the movies. Steve, Betty, and Tony have relocated to it from the hospital, and they're talking about the tragic turn of events. Tony conveys his surprise at the whole thing by continuing his trend of being a disgusting dickhead. As he describes a time he introduced Hank to a woman with sexy little learning disabilities, and how Hank just bored that woman with stories about his wonderful wife. Betty reveals that she knew that Hank had beaten Jan before. The stories she tells are pretty explicit, so I'm not going to relay them here. Just trust me on this one. Thanks, Mark. A brooding, shadowed Steve Rogers remains silent for the whole conversation. Tony asks Betty why she never said anything. Betty responds that she just sort of hoped it all went away. She follows that by saying that she wasn't sure it was anyone else's business. And this is another razor-sharp example of why community is so important. Truly, why a society based on community is so important. Let's look to Soviet Russia as an example. After the revolution, divorce laws were overhauled in the Family Code of 1918. At the time, this was the most progressive family code in the world. It codified into law the right of women to initiate divorce procedures. Marriage did not establish community of property, so a woman fleeing an abusive husband could take her things with her. The marrying parties could legally not restrict the property rights of one another. Alimony was codified, and if the party paying the alimony couldn't afford to do so, the party receiving the alimony could instead apply for income from the Department of Social Security. Financial independence was a guarantee for divorced women in the Soviet Union long before anything remotely similar was enacted in the United States. And it's just a little eye-opening to realize this is the very same USSR the United States spent 10 years agitating and manipulating all those Afghan children into fighting against. This isn't to say, of course, that a relationship like Jan's and Hank's would be impossible in a communist economy, nor is the USSR's specific family code universally applicable. But at the very least, Jan would have guaranteed stability and material rights after leaving Hank were they to live in a society that valued the comfort, safety, and life of all over the material wealth of a few. It's after Tony turns down an autograph for a fan who's noticed them sitting there that the three look up to watch a news report on the diner's television about the Wasp's hospitalization and the rumors that her husband is the culprit. The next page is a full-page drawing of Thor angelically descending from on high for some reason. It feels like a, like a chapter divider for a division that isn't there. It's like an establishing shot for a scene that doesn't happen how this picture makes you think it would. It's super jarring. After it, we see our actual establishing shot. We're with Nick Fury back at the Triskelion, and he's on the phone with one of the other Ultimates we haven't actually heard of yet, the Black Widow. She wasn't even mentioned as an absentee for the disastrous photo shoot back in issue four. This scene is where we get our second taste of the big baddies of this whole season, 
The mysterious aliens that were telegraphed in the very first issue as being Nazi benefactors in World War II. The Black Widow is updating Fury on her findings regarding alien sleeper agents and assuring him that she and Hawkeye won't need any help from the public face of the Ultimates. We finally see a panel with Thor, so I guess we're supposed to just understand that that huge picture of him coheres with the rest of the sequence. Listen, there's trusting your audience, and then there's just making weird decisions and not changing them. Anyway, Thor strides past S.H.I.E.L.D.'s front desk, and we learn from the attendant there that Tony Stark is going to be late because he's involved in yet another corporate media merger. Again, the monopolization of our means of communication and dissemination by capital can only hinder any attempts to build meaningful organic community at a large scale. And Tony's supposed to be a good guy. Thor apologizes for his tardiness to the meeting and claims that he was fighting the Midgard Serpent. Fury assumes that he was making a euphemism for masturbating. It's hilarious. With Tony held up, Fury calls his assistant to find out where Captain America is and why he isn't there yet. No surprise that they can't get him. Turns out, Steve Rogers has turned off his phone. I think it's time to revisit A Psalm of Life from earlier, because Miller left out a couple of stanzas. The poem ends thus. Lives of great men all remind us. We can make our lives sublime and, departing, leave behind us footprints on the sands of time. Footprints that perhaps another, sailing o'er life's solemn main, a forlorn and shipwrecked brother, seeing, shall take heart again. Let us, then, be up and doing, with a heart for any fate, still achieving, still pursuing, learn to labor and to wait. It's fitting that Miller did not include these. They're anathema to the ultimates. While the rest of the poem is great, it describes only what an individual should do with their life to eke the most out of it for themselves. These stances broaden that. They explain how such vigorous actions relate the hero to others, to the community. Our lives have meaning specifically because they impact the lives of others on individual and on national levels. Thus, we should be up and doing. It's our responsibility, both to our community, to those we've made a connection with, and to our very own spiritual well-being, to be making positive impacts on the world and each other. This is precisely what the Ultimates fails to do. None of these people leave anything positive in their wake, and it would ring hollow for any of them to have said those words. Arguably, the closest we come to a positive outcome might be the rare, almost noble note we can end this issue on. In a terse sequence, drenched in a wrathful red, Captain America stands alone in the S.H.I.E.L.D. headquarters satellite room and uses the computer to locate Dr. Henry Pym. With murder in his eye, he radios for a helicopter. Salutations and welcome back, all of you out there in listener land. We've rounded the corner and are finally in the back half of the season. Where will our story take us next? Who can possibly say? Before we move on to business, 
we'd like to extend our warmest congratulations to our very own local youth brigade for nailing their performance of revolutionary songs and skits. The entire community was left breathless by their dances, in tears by the harmonies, and somewhat concerned by their costuming. Ah well, I'm sure the superglue they used to attach the revolutionary facial hair to themselves will come off. Eventually. Angles might take a while. Special thanks this week to Ian Anderson of the Anti-Imperialist Archive for their help with so very many sources. Thanks, Ian. Now I think it's time we recognize just how large our listener community is growing. Bigger by the day. We'd like to first thank brand new patrons, Kaiju Sommelier and J.D. Lunt. We'd also like to thank Walt Llewellyn for increasing his pledge from odd bystander to lovable sidekick. Finally, we're overwhelmed to announce that comrade David Barajas has upped his pledge to become our first ever Destroyer of Empire level supporter. Destroyers of Empire get their names shouted out at the end of each episode, and they get a coveted seat on the council, meaning they get to submit and vote on stories that our fearless host will tackle in bonus episodes each season. From the bottom of our hearts, thank you. You yourself can ensure that Collective Action Comics will be around for as long as possible by signing up for our Patreon. Any of the four tiers will get your name on the radio. You can email the show at collectiveactioncomics at gmail.com and follow us on Instagram at collectiveactioncomics or on Twitter at CAComicsPod. That's comics with an X. And as always, tune in next time for the next thrilling installment of Collective Collective Action Action Comics. Comics!